Welcome to the Energy Nerd Show, powered by Synapse Energy Economics and Climbable.org. This time on the Energy Nerd Show. Is the title of this episode going to be California, a fiery hellhole? <laughs> Isn't that the Fox News catch on California? <laughs> Energy Nerd Show. Hey, Jeannie. Yeah, Brew. Who's our guest on the Nerd Show today? Today we have Eric Borden. He's a principal at Synapse. Good morning, Eric. Hey, Eric. Hi, Bruce and Jeannie. How's it going? Going all right. It's good here in Massachusetts. How's it going in California? Always crazy, always fun. Looking forward to talk about it. So you're kind of new to Synapse. Do you want to tell us a little bit about the kind of work that you do? Yeah, so I'm a new-ish principal associate um, working on a whole bunch of things already, some rate design, rate cases, and then continuing work in California and elsewhere on electric vehicles and uh, wildfire work, risk work, but also looking at costs and things like that. What are you going to tell us about today? Well, I thought I'd go through a little bit of my experience in California, a little bit of, you know, the California crazy that I've seen and experienced since 2015 when I came out here, and then talk a little bit more about some of the wildfire work that I've been doing. I actually came to California from Germany, where I've been doing some renewable integration research, work on storage and you know, I kind of thought, what better place to come? The nexus of cool energy policy and good weather, I think, tends to lead you towards California. Um, And so I came out to California and was really lucky to get a position with TURN, which is a ratepayer advocacy group um, located in San Francisco. And when I got hired at TURN, I was actually the only internal analyst. Um, They had relied on outside experts like Synapse. So I was lucky to come on and be the only internal analyst and get to explore a lot of different topic areas. What was going on in 2015, the SB 350 passed that year. That was a big environmental bill that ramped up renewable goals, doubled energy efficiency, and also gave the utilities a larger role in building out electric vehicle infrastructure. And so I actually started like probably my first case was on looking at electric vehicle infrastructure costs, you know, what are the benefits to, to ratepayers? What are the risks? So the big focus then was on electric vehicles, but also like DERs. Like there was a lot of talk about, well, what are we going to do with rooftop solar? What are we going to do with DERs? And I mentioned that because the landscape, when you looked at what utilities were doing, it was all about DERs, electric vehicles, all that stuff. Everything kind of changed in November, 2018, when the campfire happened. So PG&E, a piece of their transmission system failed called a C-hook, which basically held up wires on the transmission system. It failed and caused this horrible, devastating fire called the campfire, which um, burned through the town of Paradise, killed 85 people. It was a really awful event. Um, And it was, you know, it was negligence by PG&E that caused it. They hadn't inspected this transmission tower. They hadn't maintained it. Um, And subsequently, PG&E went bankrupt. So that really changed the landscape. I mean, you know, certainly one thing I like to say about California is that I think is true is it kind of runs at 100 miles an hour in every direction. Not always great from a policy standpoint, but certainly keeps things interesting. And so it's not that other areas have dropped off, but the main focus is now for utilities like wildfire risk. Like, what should we do? 
you know, it is a risk that probably was underappreciated by the utilities in years past. You know, the campfire made that more clear and really all the utilities have focused more on wildfires. And so that's been a big part of my work in the last four or five years. And what about your your personal experience with all these fires? Have you been uh, affected by them outside of your work life? Oh, absolutely. I think almost all of us have. When we were in the Bay Area, we would have days that were so smoky. And we had, you know, like um, really young children, like, uh, you know, uh, uh, basically a newborn baby at the time. And so we would like, we'd be looking at the smoke maps and trying to find like, where's like the little pocket that has like some clean air. Um, and I'll tell you what, when I, we just were in Germany, my wife's family's from there and we come back and we get back at night. We're like, oh, we're finally home, long flight. And we look over in the distance and there's this massive wildfire burning in the distance near our house, basically. Um, and so everything worked out. We, but we were, you know, we were actually the closest I've ever been to an evacuation zone. Um, and this was just uh, last week or two weeks ago. Um, so yeah, it's an ever-present threat. There's very few places in California that are completely safe. I mean, San Francisco, for example, is probably one. Like there's, you know, there's um, just based on the climate and vegetation there. But, um, you know, most places in California um, and certainly the smoke-related, almost everywhere is, is impacted by it. We had smoke here in Massachusetts from uh, wildfires in the West. Yeah, it is. It's one of those things that affects, you know, and I remember there was one fire in Colorado that came out here. It's like, you know, it's all connected. So it's really hard when we think about the loss of life and how it's impacting so many people all the time. It's really hard to think about, you know, is it worth it to do these upgrades or those upgrades? It's like, of course, you you got to do them because something has to change. This is really not okay to have the utilities, um, you know, at risk mm -hmm. of causing this stuff happening again. And then there's, from a there's, policy, not, there's not infinite money. <laughs> there's not infinite money. And, and we're talking about a policy perspective. Uh, so there have to be some, some choices. So how do you, how do you approach that? Exactly. I mean, it's, it's been some of the most interesting, fascinating and difficult work, you know, that I've done. Um, just one kind of global thing to keep in mind that I do feel is underappreciated is that as with a lot of these societal issues that we deal with through utilities, like just thinking about what should the utility do will not solve, you know, the issue. You know, utilities are responsible for about 10% of ignitions in California. Now, many of those fires have been larger ones. So if you go through the thought exercise of, well, let's say we eliminate all risk from utilities, Will that stop wildfires in California? No, you know. Um, and one thing I wish I could talk about more in my work is, you know, when I when I started doing this work, I did like this is how I get into topics is I'll do like a literature review. I'll go out and I'll just read stuff like what are academics saying? You know, people that have been doing this work for years, and I was surprised to find really heavy consensus around one solution to preventing um, and, you know, helping spread of wildfires, which is something called prescribed burns. The term that they use is good fire. So you, you actually intentionally start fires to thin out vegetation and to like keep forests healthy. And we've basically gotten away from that in the West um, and towards a culture of just fire suppression all the time. But it is like a solution 
that is really well agreed upon in the literature that, you know, should be a main focus for the state as a whole. So I didn't quite answer your question. I will get into how we approach, uh, you know, what should utilities be doing? But I think it is like a societal issue, just like climate change, just like others, where it has to be a full, you know, government, private approach to it, not just like looking at, well, what should utilities do? Of course, we should look at that. But keeping in mind that these fake silos that we've set up as a society probably need, need, to, need to be broken down a little bit. I have a friend who works in the UC um, system, Max Moritz, and he works on the good fires research. What's difficult for me is when I write testimony on this stuff, I can't really even talk about <laughs> talk about that because it's not really under the jurisdiction of the CPUC. So I really look hard at what are utilities proposing? What are the best ways for them to reduce risk, but also keep in mind that, you know, energy can't become a luxury good. It's already really difficult in California for people to pay their bills. We have the number one poverty rate in the country when you account for cost of living. And you have PG&E coming along right now saying we want $10 billion to underground 3,000 something miles of its system as part of a larger plan to underground 10,000 miles over the next 10, 20 20 years, they say 10 years, but I'm a little bit skeptical that that's a realistic uh, target. And, you know, that's 10 billion of 20 billion that they're proposing just in the next uh, rate case. So we're looking at, you know, really like unfathomable cost increases that, you know, people can't afford and that, you know, aren't really necessary actually to reduce the risk of wildfire in their system. So I've looked hard at that. Um, and one of the things I did was I've looked at, well, what are the, what have caused the largest wildfires in pg and service territory for all the data I could get, which is basically 2015 to 2020. And I found it in every single case for every large fire, right, that had a really big impact, every single one was found to be um, the result of negligence by PG&E or, you know, the result of PG&E not following the law and either not inspecting its equipment or not maintaining its equipment or, you know, not doing the vegetation management for which ratepayers have funded. So I actually didn't know that until... This rate case and just having looked at, you know, every single fire, that was the case. And so that actually wasn't built into PG&E's risk modeling that they did. But um, I do want to bring up this first slide um, that's titled Cost Effectiveness of Wildfire Strategies. What this shows is the blue line is what's called a risk spend efficiency metric. This is a cost effectiveness metric that we use in risk modeling that's defined as risk reduction divided by cost. So it's a really kind of elegant way to show in one number, based on their proposal, what is the risk and efficiency or RSE of each program. And then the, the orange bars show just the costs of each program. So blue line is the RSE and orange bars are costs. And what you see related to what I was talking about before is that actually these like basic utility programs around compliance with the law have the highest cost effectiveness, meaning they reduce the most risk 
for the cost. And that's very much in line with what I saw when I looked at the causes of the wildfires, even though it wasn't even built into the risk modeling. Just the results of their risk modeling, you know, showed that those are the programs that need the biggest focus. And, you know, it was very much aligned with the causes of the wildfires that we had seen. And so, you know, the position where we kind of ended up was, look, undergrounding probably should increase. And probably there needs to be other measures like covered conductor. That's not shown in this slide. But that's essentially heavily insulated wire where, you know, if vegetation comes in contact with that wire, it's much less likely to actually ignite a fire. So you look at costs and you look at what does it do from a risk perspective and you think about how do you, you know, balance those things. The RSE metric helps you a lot in that because that's what it's designed to look at. And then you think about, okay, you know, what can folks afford and how can we do this in a more strategic fashion? So, yeah, that's how, how you know, I've approached it. Every case has been different because I get more and better data um, as we go along, which, you know, makes my life better and easier. Like the more data we actually have versus just saying like, well, wildfires are bad, so let's spend a lot of money, right? And unfortunately, in the sort of later phases of the case, that's kind of where the rhetoric goes. But I feel like it's my job to put numbers to that and to show like, here's what the facts are showing. Like, here's what we can do to really make a meaningful dent and reduce risk, but also think about affordability and and costs and all that. What I take from this graph and what you're saying, Eric, is that kind of your position or it turns position is is something like, um, let's not rush to spend $10 billion on undergrounding when we're not doing these other things first that are um, more effective per dollar. And, you know, spending $2 billion on vegetation management would uh, be much more uh, effective. And it's not only less money, but it'll, it'll do more for reducing um, the risks and, 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 and the fires. Yeah. And doing it well is key. And then is PG&E's position, uh, no, let's waste $10 billion um, and skip the other stuff. That's required by law and uh, common sense. Well, it's not even skip the other stuff. It's let's waste $10 billion and do the other stuff because they have to do it and they have to keep doing it. Um, So in total, it's $20 billion just for wildfire in this rate case. Of course, remember, they still have to, you know, do capacity upgrades and do all the rest of the stuff utilities do. Um, And so, you know, another thing that you do in these cases is you say, okay, what evidence are you showing me that this $10 billion is warranted, right? So I am probably one of the few people who looked at every document that I could get about what is this based on, right? Like, what have you done? And there was really nothing there. I mean, this was an announcement that the CEO made that said, we're going to underground 10,000 miles. I have to tell you, Bruce and Jeannie, it's kind of smart politics in a way. People are really sick of seeing utility cause wildfires. And they think, yeah, let's underground these lines. You know, that that's a good idea. But I think that the cost of it is unknown and the execution risk is um, extremely high. It's kind of like, especially with the kind of planning detail that they've done, it's kind of like going to, into building a nuclear power plant where, um, you don't even know how to design it or what reactor you're going to use. It's, it's you know, that, that undergrounding is a really complex thing. One of the other things I looked at was, well, based on historical averages, 
how long would it take them to do like what they're planning to do? And it was something like 2000 years or something, right? Like they're planning on accelerating it so fast to an extent that they've never done before. And they, I've certainly not seen any evidence that they can do that and do it well. Like it's not just about underground. It's about undergrounding in the right places is really key. Um, so I think it'll, it would be super risky and, and a really, really bad thing for ratepayers if this, if this went forward. And here we are at a moment in uh, history where all those person years of labor uh, in California might better be deployed on things like, you know, kind of uh, modernizing, you know, grid mod. We're going to get a lot of electric heat pumps installed and uh, the ERs and, and, and all of that is going to require a fair amount of uh, money and person hours, right? Yeah. And electric vehicles. And, you know, it's, um, we want to do all that and all that's super important for, for climate. And so it would be a major problem with the focus of the company to have them shift towards, well, how can we get all this undergrounding done versus how can we comply with the law um, and get all our climate goals done and all that. But, but I, think, I think what you're not looking at, Eric, is, is that these uh, billions of dollars in undergrounding wires would be in rate base and they'd earn a profit on that, right? <laughs> I've, certainly, I've certainly looked at that. Thanks for the segue to the second slide. So this was something where I really like to like, if there's rhetoric around like something that somebody says can be done, I like to put numbers to it. I think that's part of uh, my role in this space. And so this was to try to quantify, PG&E kept saying, well, we're going to actually save money by doing this $10 billion, or actually this is a lot more than $10 billion. This is the full 10,000 miles of undergrounding and with revenue requirement, it's something like actually a hundred billion. Um, so I said, okay, I want to put numbers to that and use conservative from our perspective assumptions, meaning low costs, high savings numbers to show like, let's just see how this, how this looks. And lo and behold, the cost of undergrounding is just so outweighs, you know, reduced maintenance costs on the overhead system. Um, I even looked at PSPS, which is, you know, utilities will shut off power to customers um, to avoid wildfires. Um, and so I looked at, well, what's the economic value to customers of not having that done because the lines are underground, right? Um, even with that value, you know, um, the cost of undergrounding is just so much larger. So, so yeah, it just doesn't pencil. Yeah, I, I looked at the um, transmission outages data from Europe for underground versus above ground um, lines, and 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 the underground, the frequency of failures is less for underground uh, transmission, but the uh, duration is much longer. They're basically harder to fix. Yeah, um, and, and, and and so you kind of get this trade off between fewer but longer. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. Um, so yeah, it's not always as, as clear as, as you might think. So hey, um, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, appreciate it. Great, great talking with you, Eric. Good to talk to you. Check out the show notes for visuals and links for more info on the topics discussed. You can find the Energy Nerd Show on social media pretty much everywhere at Energy Nerd Show or on our website at energynerdshow.com. Thanks for listening.